Welcome back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Phil. And the title of this film, or should I say the shorthand title, T2, is so <laughs> bold and ballsy a thing to do. It seems to announce this film as a major event and draws a lot of attention and scrutiny to mm-hmm, it, which is kind mm-hmm. of surprising. Yeah, yeah, for especially for a film that is sort of destined for a very small audience, mm-hmm. a small crowd. Uh, I'm Andrew. I'm your other co-host, and uh, I was shocked by the strength of the pangs of nostalgia that I felt while watching this film. Not for the film itself, for the time when I saw it, or any of that, but actually for the characters themselves. Interesting. It's very, very curious sensation. The film we're talking about is T2, Train Spotting 2. Uh, it's uh, the reunion film for pretty much all the creative principles behind 1996 Train Spotting. The yeah, yeah. actor, the director, the writer, the cinematographer. I'm pretty sure Anthony Dodd Mantle shot the original. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so before we get into that discussion, though, I want to tell you guys out there where you can find us on the web. You can go to our blog, which is found at www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com. On our blog, you'll find all of our episodes. You'll also find them on our Facebook page. Just search Facebook for In The Q. Q-U-E-U-E is how it is spelled. And there you can leave comments. Uh, You can enjoy the supplemental materials we post. And if you want to be on the show with us, you can join us as a guest and we can talk about the movie of your choice. Mm -hmm. We also have a Twitter. It is at ITQ Podcast. And lastly, you can find us on iTunes, Podcasts, or Overcast apps, uh, and probably other ways as well. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you've already found us. Truth. You are speaking truth. truth. Truth has been spoken. Mm -hmm. Without further ado, today's film is T2 Train Spotting 2. Hello, Mark. So, what have you been up to for 20 years? Choose life. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and hope that someone, somewhere, cares. Missed you, mate. I missed you too, Spud. Choose looking up old flames, wishing you'd done it all differently. Do you still take heroin? No. And choose watching history repeat itself. Hello, Franco. Simon. I'm old. Choose your future. Call the police. What shall I say? Just tell them we're dead. Choose reality TV, slut shaming, revenge porn. Choose a zero hour contract, a two hour journey to work, and choose the same for your kids, only worse. And smother the pain with an unknown dose of an unknown drug made in somebody's kitchen. And then take a deep breath. Yes. an addict so be addicted just be addicted to something else choose the ones you love choose your future choose life
it is. Yeah. So that you, is you jumped the gun T2. a little bit there. Well, I got so. excited. I got. I think that's understandable. Sure. Sure. I mean, there was that pregnant pause in the middle of a trailer. Yeah. Right I mean, before that actually, song that I really like that I don't know what it is. <laughs> if you can watch it, then, of course, you'll know that there's something happening. But if you're just hearing it, you can hear silence <laughs> That's for true. three seconds. That's true. Uh, yeah. Speaking of, of music, why not just start there? Um, the sure. original Train Spotting from 1996 had a tremendous soundtrack. One of the best ever. soundtrack, yeah. And this one uh, features some cool new music, as well as some revamped uh, chestnuts from the original film. Indeed. Uh, such as the uh, a very kind of clever allusion to Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The basic kind of premise of T2, I think it's pretty light on plot. It's, a, it's, it's the kind of a film that I thought was mostly uh, revisiting characters and, yeah. and, uh, and their kind of day-to-day activities uh what happens in t2 is uh renton who ripped off begbie at the end of the first film stealing thousands of scottish dollars from him yeah literally ripped off begbie but ripped them all off because the plan was that they were going to except for spud he he gave some he gave spud some extra cash um because he likes spud um 20 years have passed. Renton comes back to Scotland. He finds that Spud has used the money that he was given mm. to develop a serious heroin habit. Which, which, he's, which uh, he already had, quite frankly. <laughs> right, to nurse a, a serious heroin <laughs> yes. habit. Yes. Uh, he, uh, Sick Boy, who now goes by Simon, uh, is running a blackmail scheme to make extra money with his Bulgarian girlfriend. Yeah. And uh, uh, Begbie, whom Renton doesn't actually run into until much later in the film, mm-hmm. uh, we see that Begbie is in jail. And he's just as violent and psychotic as ever. Yes, he is. So um, Renton decides that he's going to try and, I guess, revisit the, these major guys who had a significant impact on his life. Uh, not so much to come clean i would say uh what what would you say his motivations were in in going back to edinburgh uh i would say that it's to get back to something familiar and uh mm-hmm. and maybe even try to make amends uh with those that he had wronged in the past his life at this point is kind of falling apart in a way mm-hmm. uh and uh and he wants to to make it right, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, the film just kind of—it's funny because the the situations. Like I, I went ahead at the beginning of this episode and said that I thought it was light on plot. Sure. And I think that it was. It's based on a book just like the original film by Irvine Welsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book was called Porno, and it's the sequel to Train Spotting. It's also partially yeah. based on the book Train Spotting. Yes. And. Um, this is the kind of film that you can sort of see how it originated as a novel because it it's not so much about uh, a series of 
connected events. I mean, as much as it's about the lives of these characters and uh, the film kind of ambles and moves from from one situation to the next. Mm -hmm. And it the thing that kind of the common the thread that unites everything is just kind of the fact that it's happening to these four dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of important female characters who are kind of on the on the uh, outskirts of the story. But uh, it's funny because while this story has a, a very strong kind of internal rhythm and, and it's focused on the, the mindset of these characters, it has a very kind of extroverted and and strong visual scheme. Yeah. Where the Danny Boyle, the director, has crafted a, a very kinetic and interesting and colorful and uh, uh, not not lazy <laughs> technique yeah. to to direct this film. Yeah, and incidentally, uh, we said earlier that we thought that Anthony Dodd Mantle was the cinematographer on the original Transpotting. He was not, in fact. It right. was yeah. Brian Tufano. Thank you for checking that. I didn't think that he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, uh, Brian Tufano did the first three Danny Boyle films, or f maybe even four, and then. Uh, by the time Danny Boyle had gotten to Slumdog Millionaire, he took on Anthony Dodd Mantle, and then he's done every one of his films since, it looks like. Yeah, and uh, there's all kinds of different distancing techniques that Danny Boyle employs in this film, such mm -hmm. as uh, text on screen. Like at the beginning of the film, yeah. when these uh, characters are talking in these thick Scottish brogues, I was wondering if all their dialogue was going to be subtitled, <laughs> but it's just kind of the beginnings uh, of the film to kind of why? Well, yeah, what's the purpose of it? The purpose of having the text on screen, it uh, it engages you, and the world is a different place than it was 20 years ago. We've seen it all since then, and having text on screen and having these kind of Brechtian devices mm -hmm. that are used throughout the movie. Uh, kind of satiate our desire for entertainment and the film kind of delivers on multiple levels in that regard. Yeah. And I would also say that it's also perhaps a stylistic territory into which Danny Boyle has found himself mm -hmm. or into which he has tread. Uh, because if you recall Steve Jobs, uh, the Danny Boyle film starring mm -hmm. Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs, um, had the same uh, technique. It had text on screen while characters were talking. It had uh, projection, uh, projecting uh, things onto the actors or the objects within a scene. Um, mm -hmm. Several of the techniques that are used in this film, rather effectively, I think, uh, were also used in that film. So um, it was very, uh, very curious. Uh, thing to see Danny Boyle reusing some of those techniques, but in a different context. And when I say that the film is not lazy, that's an extremely uneloquent way to, to communicate the fact that yeah. the film is, it, it's not pointless. It, it, it has gravitas. It has, it has artistic merit. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's not, the Danny Boyle is not sleepwalking through this film. You can tell that he's extremely engaged and he is telling a story about these middle-aged guys that could have been uh, a 
sort of pathetic excuse to mine someone's previous success. But uh, right. no, it's uh, this film is very alive, and it's uh, the style of it. I thought was very interesting. The only problem for me was that while the style of it and the the characters were all good, I felt like they didn't have a lot of consequence to do. I felt like their uh, the 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 premise of of T two was not really strong enough for me to uh, to be completely engaged the whole time. <clears throat> yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, and I think that there is some truth to that, but I think I was a little more engaged than you were in that regard. And I do think that it's not... Uh, I thought it was interesting that you said that you, it, there really wasn't a whole lot of story, a whole lot of plot uh, mm-hmm. on this film, because I actually think that this film was more so than the first one very much plot driven. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like the idea of uh, this kind of these kind of dual narrative threads of uh, sick boy and his young uh, flame uh, sort of trying to fulfill their dream and and possibly at the same time double cross Renton mixed with the simultaneous story of the rekindling of Renton and Spud's friendship and Spud perhaps making an honest man of himself. Mm -hmm. And then the third leg of that, of course, is Begbie's psychotic uh, nature getting the best of him. And, uh, and all of those things, I think that those three narrative threads sort of intertwining and, and rubbing up against each other, um, is what makes this film fun and interesting and mm. and and good to watch. Now, I do think that you're right in that it is it is really at, at its heart a character study, and that's part of why I said my opening um, bit that I said because uh, it was really very touching and very surprisingly uh, joyful, even. To mm. visit these characters again. Uh, I mean, this movie, uh, Train Spotting, came out when I was 17 years old, when we were both 17 years old. Yeah. And um, that was a very crucial time in my film going life. And to have a new sure. movie like that out there on the scene was like a very uh, exciting thing. Yeah. Um, and Train Spotting, the original, is still widely recognized as a masterpiece. And it was named yeah. the greatest Scottish film of all time. Yeah. By, yeah. by a Scottish uh, filmmaking body. Yeah, and it's genuinely a great film. And even though it is about uh, a group of heroin addicts and their uh, friend who needs anger management, <laughs> it, it, uh, <laughs> it, it, you still love them. Um, I remember I had a, I had a, uh, they, they like handed out a series, they, there, was, there were postcards for each of the characters. And I had a postcard for Spud that was like hung on my wall when I was in high school. Wait, and at the movie theater, they were giving away those cards. Yeah. They had the little, uh, train spotting postcards the, with the orange text and the black and white photos. Because I mean, when I, when I've worked at movie theaters, they would do that for like Marvel movies or Max steel or, or Warcraft, but they wouldn't do it for like a indie Scottish film. Well, you know. Don't forget, I think I think if I'm not mistaken, Train Spotting was released by Miramax. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think it was. At that point in time, uh, indie movies had a lot more clout than they do now, and especially indie movies coming out of Miramax because the Weinstein's were uh, treating independent cinema as though it were blockbuster cinema, and they were right. uh, putting huge marketing dollars behind indie films. And I remember mm-hmm. Train Spotting was one of those films that got a huge push. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of marketing materials that were sort of out there floating around um, gotcha. at the time. And one of those things was a postcard with Spud on it, <laughs> uh, which was great. Uh, and, uh, and I love Spud, the character, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and I loved him then. And I loved him in this. Like, I just I just fell right back in love with that character all over again, because not only is it a pretty impressive feat for actors to return to roles that they played 20 years ago and nail them spot on. Yeah. Uh, But it's also impressive that the writer and the director were able to return to those characters and make them feel like they felt then. Um, But with this sort of tinge of, 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 you know, time gone by. Yeah, and for some reason, while all four of the actors I thought were good at that, for some reason it was Sick Boy, a.k.a. Simon, yeah. who seemed to me like he just never left. Like he, <laughs> yeah. uh, that actor, Johnny, Johnny Lee Miller, Miller yeah. uh, he, he, just, he in particular seemed like he just stepped off the set of the original film and yeah. he, was, he was balder and older more tattoos, but, uh, he was, he also, I felt had the most interesting kind of premise in this film too, because sure. he is doing this, uh, you know, sexual blackmail scheme with his girlfriend and, um, they're and, and all trying they're to double cross of, Renton and <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, but they're all superb and it's, it's good to point out the fact that they're, these actors are playing characters. You know, yeah. it's, a lot of people will say, "Oh, they're just being themselves." Well, look at Robert Carlyle's other work, for yeah. example. We were talking about that TV show once, <laughs> yeah. uh, about where we where you see a very different side of him. Yeah. Well, it's it's quite a feat to uh, to step into a character that you haven't played for twenty years, and then update that personality for how they would be 20 years later and how you are now and try to make it all work. Yeah. And especially to step into a character that then was such a terrifyingly volatile character. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at a lot of the work that Robert Carlyle's done in the interim and he's played a wide variety of roles and some of them much more subdued, much more uh, uh, nuanced. And to see him go mm-hmm. back to a character like this and just pick it right back up and have that same intensity and that same, uh, fear and anger. And, you know, yeah. Oh man. He, he didn't lose any of his, uh, punch. No, none. Yeah, in all these years. And I, neither did the filmmakers because this is a nasty film. And mm-hmm. I mean, I really, uh, <laughs> it seems weird to say it, but I loved how nasty it was in the sense that, <laughs> You know, there's a scene where it's darkly comic like the original, but uh, Renton encounters Spud after 20 years, right when Spud is trying to suffocate himself to death. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's got a bag over his head, and and 
<laughs> as Renton bursts into his flat to try and save him, Spud vomits inside of his plastic yeah. bag, and it just you're watching it disgusted because it's all over his face and it's yeah. like in his eyes and he's yeah. choking on it. And then later in the film, Renton gets, you know, brutally stabbed in the arm yeah. and it like rips down his, the length of his entire forearm. And, and, uh, it's the, the rules of this film are down and dirty. And it's not like these guys have mellowed out after 20 years. They're still just as dark and, you know, grody as ever. Yeah, and I think that a lot of that has to do with Danny Boyle's direction, um, because he uh, not only did he have something to live up to, and I think that some of that kind of gross-out humor is something of a, an attempt to live up to some of the scenes in the original film. There's, of course, a very famous scene where Renton goes into the the what is it? It's called like the worst toilet in all of Scotland. Scot- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a, a particularly vomit-inducing scene in the original film. But also quite uh, beautiful, too, the way they... Well, yeah, yeah, once he gets... Once he goes into the scene. toilet and it becomes this, like, weird dream sequence. Uh, but uh, Danny Boyle, I mean, uh, he hasn't lost a step in all these years. He's one of those directors that I've never felt sort of settled into himself or, or kind of started phoning it in. Um, getting too self-indulgent maybe like that. He's not doing that. No, he's not. And, uh, and even, um, Steve jobs, which I mentioned, mentioned earlier was on my list two years ago as one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, because I think that he is, he's just, he's got such a great knack for keeping it interesting. Uh, Danny Boyle's films are almost, it's almost impossible to look away from the screen. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I, I feel like his, they're so kinetic and they're so, uh, fun, even when they're not fun, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, like you were saying that there's a nasty film. Yeah, it is a nasty film, but it's also like, it's also so much fun to be around these people, you know? Mm-hmm. And even though they're awful people, almost to a man, uh, or woman, uh, there's some awful women in this movie too, or what, at least one awful woman. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a real testament to Danny Boyle's direction that, that this film does have that, uh, that edge and that energy and all of that. Yeah. And, uh, of course, when you're dealing with a a film, you've got three stages of creation that, the writing of the screenplay, the, sure. the shooting, and then the editing. And the editor, the screenwriter, the DP, the director all kind of share major above-the-line creative duties. Uh, while we're praising Danny Boyle, I also want to mention mm-hmm. how outstanding the editing is in this movie, oh, yeah. too. Yeah. And uh, I credit Danny Boyle with assembling the different sort of pieces of the puzzle, but I credit uh, the editor, John Harris, by putting them together in such a way that is so edgy and so in the moment, so alive. Uh, and it, it just, the film does not rest on its laurels. It's constantly pushing forward, constantly introducing new things to the audience. And it does a very good job of sort of, um, interpolating 
scenes from the original Train Spotting into this one, uh, not just for the sake of nostalgia, but to effectively call upon the memories of some of the main characters, like Spud, mm-hmm. who uh, there's a really cool scene where he's walking down a familiar street and the, all of a yeah. sudden the editing switches between a footage footage from the original Train Spotting with this one, and it's like younger versions of those guys run right past Spud and he's remembering it and we're actually seeing it. And it's a really nice kind of evocation of memory in visual terms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a, the whole, the whole creative team for this, I think should be credited uh, with doing a good job. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, yeah, uh, I think it's, I think it, it, this was, Better than I imagined it would be. Um, mm-hmm. I think it still doesn't quite reach the greatness of the original. Um, I think it would be hard to. Um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was. It would be possible. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would say that would be extremely difficult. Um, but I think that this is uh, a really excellent effort on everybody's part. Um, also, man, I like seeing you and McGregor with this much energy and and quality of acting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it seems like he's been in so many dud projects over the years and uh, the promise of, of this, you know, bright young actor who had done Shallow Grave and Train Spotting and A Lifeless Ordinary, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there was a certain point at which you couldn't help but feel like he was wasting his talent to some ex- extent. Yeah, um, and it was great to see him in this again because it felt like he was right back to that sort of vital actor that he was back in the day. Indeed, and he doesn't look terribly different either. No, I mean, no. He's, shockingly, he's, he's got crow's feet. He's got some more lines in his face, but uh, he's actually aged quite well. And I would put him in the upper echelon of famous actors who have aged very well. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he's doing. He well. really. He looks almost exactly the same as he did 20 years ago. They it's even, kind of uh, infuriating. Yeah, they even comment on it in the film. There's even a yeah. line where they're like, you look exactly the same as you did back then. Yeah. Um, but all those guys are you know, in good shape. They're all convincing uh, versions of their former selves. And, sure. Yeah. sure. So I think while uh, you know, I, the movie, it, it pulls out all the stops to, to make a kinetic – and visually dazzling and um it's funny because while certain scenes from the original train spotting that are surreal and dazzling they're kind of meant to mimic a drug high Mm -hmm. yeah now in this film you've got characters who are doing drugs but not to the same degree as before and not all the characters are on drugs yeah and yet you've still got a, uh, a mise-en-scene and, a, and a, an aesthetic of, of filmmaking that is dreamlike, surreal, drug-induced. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the interesting thing is because it's not – this is not the, as much of a drug movie as the original one was. Yeah. And yet in some ways it has more of a hallucinogenic quality with the use of color and light than the original did. Yeah, I would say that there's also a layer of uh... – an elegiac layer of melancholy over this film that, mm-hmm. that was not present in the first one. The first one was, has a sort of uh, 
kineticism of youth. And this yeah. one has a much more uh, subdued tone to it. And, uh, and despite the, the, what you're describing, this kind of like drug induced kind of uh, visual aesthetic, yeah. um, it's also moving at a bit of a slower and more thoughtful pace. It, it almost feels like the, the story and the characters have aged, you know, in mm-hmm. real time. <laughs> and yeah, it's really interesting. And there's a, a notable rant that happens in, yeah. I, I would place it in the final third of the film where uh, Renton is kind of doing the 2017 version of his famous choose life uh, rant from the first film. Yeah. Only now he's attacking <laughs> all these changes that have happened in the past 20 years, mostly in the past 10 years where people are, you know, addicted to Facebook and Twitter and, yeah, and yeah. and and online porn and all these different things, and he's kind of he's indicting all these things that our generation uh, takes for granted and and sure. and lives by. And uh, here you've got these middle-aged dudes who are sort of, you know, Renton in particular, delivering this ultimatum to the audience. He's he it's. He's doing it to a fellow character, but it is make no mistake. It's directed at us yeah, and our yeah. culture, uh, our culture of social media and of modern living in general. Um, all these things are eating away at us. Yeah. And just like they were rebelling in the original film against choosing life, choosing family, choosing a job. Uh, now the rant is about all these things that you don't need, but yet so many people are, are obsessed with them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It actually, it, it reminded me a little bit of the rant in 25th hour that Edward Norton does that people complain about this sort of, uh, rant against sort mm-hmm. of, uh, everything and everyone, um, that, that people seem to value in the world. Um, although this was a lot more pointed or a lot less misanthropic than that rant. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I'm, um, I'm going to have to confess 25th Hour is a film I have not seen. Oh, my God. But it's a Phil. film that I have wanted to see Phil. for quite some time. Oh, man. Well, yeah. uh, we need to see that at some point. And maybe even if anybody out there wants to suggest it as a film that we want to talk <laughs> about, I encourage you to do so so that we can talk about it with Phil. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to say uh, before we go, there was one scene in particular that it was one of those sort of darkly comic scenes that I really loved in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was, it was unusual and sort of took me by surprise. There's a moment when sick boy and Renton are, uh, they basically infiltrate a gathering of secularists, uh, who, uh, are celebrating, uh, I don't know, William the Conqueror or something. I, I don't remember. 1690 is all yeah. I could, uh, <laughs> 1690 from that, <laughs> uh, was the year, um, that, that I guess the they killed a bunch of Catholics and and the secularists uh, came to power at least for a short time. And, uh, and they infiltrate this group of all these sort of like this clandestine group of, of people. Um, And they're, and they're robbing them blind. They're stealing all of their debit cards. And, uh, and then just as they get ready to leave, they, they're held at this gathering and they're told that they need to sing a a secularist hymn for everybody to sing along (laughs) with. And it was a an absolutely delightful scene, I thought, of them 
sort of having to improvise a secularist anthem uh, that turns out to be a great big hit. Uh, But I just thought it was handled with such a plum and it was so fun and so funny. And uh, I I just, I was sitting there tapping my feet and getting into the whole thing (laughs) while I was in the theater. I thought it was great. Yeah, that was a funny scene and it was clever and it was original and it's not something that we saw in the first film at all. Nothing that even resembled it, truthfully. No. So it's um, it just goes to show this this film, while it's it has a lot of cojones to call itself T two, <laughs> um, this is not a film that uh, you know just is a retread of of familiar material. It's it's yeah. really pushing the boundaries of this of the world of these characters. So yeah. uh, if you like the first Train Spotting, uh, I recommend this one. It's different, but uh, it's still a quality experience, and all the main actors are here. So everybody's there. Even Kelly McDonald makes an appearance. Although I could have used more Kelly McDonald. Yeah. Cause she's great. Always. Yeah. Um, maybe want to go watch, uh, no country for old men again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, she's so good in that. Well, uh, that's our show about T2 mm-hmm. terrain spotting. Stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be another listener's request. Oh yes. And <laughs> this, me and Andrew were both talking about this before the show. We can't believe it, but we've never reviewed 2001 A Space Odyssey on our yes. program. So somebody has actually requested that film. And uh, apropos of nothing, we did not ask them to. But no, those no. who know me know that this is my favorite film of all time. So Yeah, and, uh, and I love it too. But we've never fucking talked about it. Not even yeah. privately, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, so, I remember talking to you about it in film school. I remember talking to you at length about it then but that's 20 years now you know it's like like yeah my opinions may have changed it's possible yeah so stay tuned for that episode and we'll catch you next time see you then